Hey, everybody, you are listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution of independent film, uh, although maybe I'm becoming a little bit more of one after every interview I do. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, I am an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature a horror film entitled The Grove. Uh, and as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've been looking at self-distribution as a potential option, but I've found that there's not a whole lot of information out there to understand how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I will be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or been personally involved in the distribution of their film. My hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from the show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. All right, today I am talking with Sean Dawes, one of the founders of Indie Scene, a platform for independent filmmakers aiming for theatrical distribution. IndieScene provides valuable, accurate box office data and looks to connect independent filmmakers with theaters worldwide. In our conversation, Sean and I talk about his early efforts getting films made both independently and within the industry, and then moving on to found IndieScene to empower filmmakers to overcome some of the kinds of challenges that he experienced in his career. We cover some good stuff here from festivals to blockchain to community engagement for cinemas and independent filmmakers alike. So without further ado, here is my chat with Sean Dawes. All right, I'm here with Sean Dawes all the way from London. I think you're in London, right? Uh, just outside, yeah. Just outside <laughs> of London. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but fellow, or, or, or I should say Portlander by birth. So kind of a fellow Portlander in a way, although I'm not Portlander by birth, but we're talking a little bit about Portland here. And yeah, it's good to see you, Sean. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, originally I born and raised in Portland. I think of myself as a native. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being being uh, living there that long. I started in the industry in Portland. Yeah. Back in high school, I was doing advanced broadcast journalism stuff. I was doing like movies of the week, like stand-ins, or you know, as well as background. Uh, I think it was... Rebecca De Mornay, her movie of the week in Oregon was like my first taste of the industry. Oh, cool. So that was great. And then, but they didn't really have a lot of stuff in Portland outside of the Northwest Film Center, which they had some classes, you know, with cutting on film and shooting with film, but it wasn't a traditional learning environment where you could like actually like learn about like lighting techniques, about, you know, camera techniques and, and movements. So I, I ventured over to Orlando, the, the farthest wow. that you could go across America to a film school there. You and I were, you and I kind of crossed paths then back in the early 2000s because I went to film school in Miami. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was close. I mean, I was, yeah. I looked at Miami, but I also looked at Wilmington, uh, North Carolina School for the Arts because that yeah. was, and I think that was back in the time where Eli Roth was there. So I missed, oh, okay. yeah, right. <laughs> I missed out of him, but, but it just didn't seem like the film school I went to, I'm not going to, necessarily name them because they're not exactly supportive. But huh. the film school I went to, I didn't learn a lot like theoretically or actual like industry wise. I learned more of the technical aspects on set, uh, mainly like with lighting and, and grip departments and camera. We learned, you know, physical camera stuff. So that kind of gave me that the background that I needed where you know, to work in the production side of things. Yeah. And that's where I, I span most of my career coming from that background. So moving back from Orlando, back to Portland, I worked on a couple features with uh, one with Kelly Baker for Kicking Bird, his feature, and then also James Westby on Film Geek. And then I kind of started getting antsy and I wanted to do more. I wanted to direct, but there's not like an in industry infrastructure yeah. in Portland for like funding for, you know, so like, mass support for filmmakers. So I migrated down to LA and went to film school again to focus on directing. And I went through the film school, not the greatest experience, but I got, I was able to do a short film that I wanted to do that was kind of had that French aesthetic. So like Godard, like My Life to Live kind of aesthetic and took it to festivals in 06, got into two of the top 15 throughout the nation, uh, Rhode Island, and then the LA International nice. uh, Shorts Film Festival. 
However, the Oscars didn't consider my film school a film school, so I did qualify. Wow. Okay. Even to submit for Oscar contention, which is weird. And then it was, it's kind of a weird time. I mean, speaking in the distribution realm, during that time, it was when a lot of the actors, like the name talent, migrated toward directing. So they switched over and, and, you know, had aspirations. So a lot of the festivals kind of took those names over filmmakers and not just like with mine, but a lot of my friends, you know, had great projects and they just didn't get in. Or some of the film festivals also classified my film as a student film. So it's like I, you know, wasn't able to get in with the regular categories, which I wanted to. I wanted to be, you know, this is a solid film. So it is what it is. But kind of that aspect of of short films, it's it's very limiting. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell a lot of filmmakers is like, if you can do a feature, you know, do a feature. Like I've seen so many people like spend 50,000 even like right now, London is doing a program where it's like 50,000 pounds to 90,000 pounds to do a short film. I'm like, well, that's not, it's, it's not shifting, like moving the industry. Like you're doing a short film, it's a limited run. Yeah, you can put it on a, a platform. You can maybe sell it to a couple places, but a feature film will not only like employ more, you know, more positions and, and develop more careers, but it also will get out there. You'll get more exposure. And then any revenue you get, you can put that back in the pot for- yeah the next filmmaker and also, you know, the ability to include veteran filmmakers. I think that's been overlooked right now where the focus is on, you know, Gen Z and younger filmmakers, which they need education, they need to learn. But I think that not incorporating them into the system with veterans where we're used to, where we can, you know, both came from in those aspects, you're not getting that mentorship. You're not getting that knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. Okay, so yeah, you're so you're in LA. You're kind of trying to navigate through this. This is kind of mid two thousands. I'm guessing. What 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 happened next? Where'd you go next? So, <laughs> being in LA, um, I continued production work. I was working at the Apple Store at the time, and then I was pitching my horror action horror film, Bring on the Night, which is based around Navy SEALs and zombies. So it's <laughs> okay, like cool. very much kind of like a, a George Romero esque film. It was like a Resident Evil type of George Romero film. Yeah. And we actually had George interested. Wow, cool. As an executive producer at the time. I mean, we had to we would have to pay him like 200 grand, but <laughs> we were looking at at that. Seriously, we had Anchor Bay interested from Canada mm-hmm. for distribution. I had unofficially <laughs> Antoine Fuqua was interested to to kind of give me some mentorship off the cuff. He really liked the script, a lot of like Navy SEALs we talked to really enjoyed the script. So I was trying to do it very accurately Yeah, to do it justice. We had Sony exec, Gerard Butler's camp wanted like 20 million. And we we're like, no, we're not, <laughs> we're not going to do that. But I mean, with, with all that, like, you know, it's, it's hard to get anything greenlit. And we had a producer that we were talking with and he wanted like 20 grand in order to talk to Cassie and Elways to hook us up with financing. And, and then I actually, bumped into Cassian and confronted him about, about our project and, you know, cause I'm excited about it and he didn't have any clue. So it's like, huh. you know, I was like, Oh, okay. Right. So it's just kind of a lot of the, like the lies and the BS that the Hollywood system promotes and you have to deal with it. And it's just, again, on the, on the independent level, it's, it's so frustrating to deal with that side. And so ultimately the project didn't get made after, you know, all my efforts and years. So shifted into development and producing at the studio level mm-hmm. with my former producing partner. It really opened my eyes to the distribution realm and the silver linings. We had a couple, for instance, we had a couple Cuban docs that we were shopping around trying to get development funds to get going. And we were talking with this name distributor at AFM. And he told me like straight to my face that the Latin market wasn't very big. Wow. <laughs> and I almost I almost cussed him out right there in the lobby because it's like I I know for a fact because I've done my research, I know the gains that you can get from a documentary like that and also the communities, not just, you know, in South America, not just the US, but worldwide, globally, that the Latin market has, especially with music, because one of our docs was a music doc and we had Pitbull interested to to narrate it. So it's like like it's it's kind of crazy like with that sort of stuff and we still 
didn't get the financing. I mean, we had other projects too, not only like, you know, series, but features where we would approach agencies like CAA where we had someone even attached to the project and they still wouldn't package. Mm. So you see this like trend of, of the Hollywood system being lazy. Like they want you to bring a full, fully packaged, fully financed project to them. And, and they expect to do little as work as possible. Yeah. Um, And that kind of goes with distribution as well, because, you know, it used to be where distributors were more lenient to giving you letters of intent, you know, promises beforehand, like, yeah, we're excited about your project. Now it's like, you have to have like, you know, the list of names from, from this sheet of paper, like only 20 names are box office, you know, worthy. And so it's very limiting for the independent market. What do you think is kind of behind all of that? Like what, what is driving that kind of change in attitude from the industry at that time? Do you think? I mean, it's, it's, it's always been there. It's a systemic issue, but it's just that control. Yeah. That um, more and more, you know, every year they, they tighten the leashes and, and you'll see it. Like if you look at the actual numbers, especially at the box office, that the markets are all funneled. Mm-hmm. So in order to get into those markets, you have to know a distributor or sales agent or the theaters themselves. And that's kind of a huge difficulty because it's a barrier of entry, especially if you're trying to get your work out there. And because right now where, you know, back in the day, again, the the distributors did value festivals and now it's only, oh, we only value these top festivals. Yeah, yeah. So, and that was even promoted recently. A writer came back from Austin Film Festival and posted that, if you don't have like if your script hasn't like been in or qualified at certain competitions, you're not going to get any any sort of management, any sort of traction. Right. Which it's it's kind of asinine to think of it that way because you know sometimes, especially with a project that we had, sometimes it, you know it just needs a little development and it'll it'll be you know box office worthy or it'll be a transnational piece where you'll be able to profit off of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like kind of what you're describing to me anyway, feels like sort of industry stagnation in a sense, like like the industry is becoming so insular and so risk averse that it's losing its ability to kind of digest, you know, fresh new material from outside. And it's kind of almost deliberately shunning that kind of innovation away in order to just kind of stay stuck in in its, its own like sort of guaranteed, like this is how we make money kind of mindset. And that's very frustrating for indie filmmakers, I think, to kind of wrap their heads around that and try to figure out, you know, how are we going to be, you know, how are we going to be self-sustaining in this environment? Does that kind of jibe with your feelings on it? Yeah. I mean, 100%. If, if we look back, like with the recent avenues of, let's say, Barbie Hammer or Barbenheimer. Yeah. Barbenheimer, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, that was an anomaly that was based off of social influence. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can all agree. I mean, they put massive amount of marketing, 250 million into the marketing alone, but also it was taking advantage of the influencers that wanted self-awareness for themselves on their own platforms. So that's where like the domino effect happened. And that's why it, it was such an anomaly, anomaly because you look back at Super Mario Brothers, which is, you know, an iconic IP did very well, but not as much as that Barbie yeah. movement did. Yeah. And the same thing with Taylor Swift. Although the Taylor Swift thing was more of a supply and demand based on the concert tour. And with that was, it, it was great because it reflects that live events should be focused on at mm-hmm. the box office more, mm-hmm. but they are, they have been profitable and people kind of miss that avenue is because uh, Fathom is huge and they make money. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why they're still around. Yep. Yep. So those live events, like within theater, or within, you know, concerts, they're very profitable. It's just that Taylor Swift is this, you know, top rated, you know, musical artist. So you're going to have a huge demand for that. I, I, the only thing that I kind of was a little bit angry about was that it still was at market value of that $20 per ticket price, which I think that they should have lowered it a little bit to accommodate more families, more fans, because right now with the, you know, recession and, you know, and everything it's 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 just not you know it's not there where people can afford to to go out and you know some theaters were charging just insane rates just to rent out the theater port <laughs> yeah yeah yep, yeah so just getting back to your own kind of personal involvement with with all of this then did you ever get to a point where you made a feature film 
Not personally, no. We we okay. just it's we had a couple different times where we were there. We had one project that we've been shopping for less than three months. We had a, a co-pro deal with Pinewood Studios. We had Warner Brothers UK interested, Lionsgate UK interested, Domo Gleason's camp on board, Jessica Brown Finley from Downton Abbey, her camp's on board, one of the producers from Darkest Hour interested. Like we had all the the ducks set up, but again, it wasn't packaged fully packaged for for the studios. And they were also combating us for wanting to go after a female director because this was a like one of the the most powerful like female empowerment stories that we've never heard really out in the public, at least in in modern times. And we wanted to really bring it to light. But the it's based in the UK. It's based around the first woman to fly around the world. Mm. And she did it in the late 40s. Mm. And so they were very against us hiring a female director for it. And we were just like, okay. But I mean, that was one thing. But the, the most interesting thing too was, even though we had all this traction, we went out to and approached managers and agents, reputable you know, directors, female directors. And we only heard back of any interest or any, any correspondence, like 20%. Mm-hmm. So of all, like we had this like project there. Yeah. And then just nothing. It's like, it's really weird how the, again, the industry works, but it's also that, that gatekeeping where these projects that we, we have, whether, you know, you're writer or director, like you're not getting through, like you have to basically have your network built in order to establish channels to get to those, you know, that talent or that cinematographer, you know, like these, these people that will essentially package your film and get it financed you know, help, help you get it financed. Right. So kind of a, as, as a reaction to that, I know that you've got some some interesting things going on now in kind of in the world of indie film distribution. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I uh, developed my, um, my company, Indie Scene. We're an entertainment tech company. We started it in late 2017. And it came after I was laid off from a, <laughs> a premier software, screenwriting software company out of LA and from a back injury. And a couple of months later, you know, they let me go because it's mm. right to work state. So that's awesome. Yeah. But at the same time, we lost that project. Me and my former producing partner, we lost the project for the first woman around the world. Yeah. And it was kind of, it put me in like a really dark place, like, you know, with my mental health. And I didn't really have a solid path in my career to, to kind of trek along. And then I just thought of, you know, before attending Sundance, attending, you know, events where there's, you know, coming from the, the studio level, there's, there's no, or even, you know, the top public figures in, in the film industry, there's no true support system for the independent market. And so I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm going to just go ahead and create this myself, create a nexus or a hub to support independent filmmakers, because that's what they need. And I, as you see right now, like, you know, it's still fragmented, like there's support systems here and there and there, even like the, the diversity protocols that some of the studios have set up, you know, fall short because, you know, they incubate writers, but even their projects aren't getting progressed. Mm-hmm. It's like, why are you doing that? Even like you should at least, you know, greenlight a couple of these projects to support the industry, but, but there's not. I mean, so <laughs> anyway, so from this, we're developing a SaaS, a software as a service subscription platform mm-hmm. that is theatrical aggregation. Okay. So what that does is help filmmakers partner directly with cinemas right. and venues around the globe. Okay. And not only that, we're looking at data and analytics to prove the market value of that independent content. So all these films around the globe, you can see, I mean, we have our MVP up, so you could see like 2019 and you can see some of the markets like the, the EMEA market, UK market, and France market, and kind of dive into those. And it'll give you a better reflection of the industry and how, how it is right now. Because when, like, just to kind of overview it, you're only seeing like the top box office films. And that's what the industry is promoting and saying, oh, no, we're okay. But it's not. We're not okay. Mm-hmm. You know, just because, you know, a couple films broke out or, you know, horror movies, especially like you see recently where Terrifier 2 talked to me and then, well, Barbican did well. Recently, Fred, uh, Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah. so that's not like the industry doesn't tell you they put a lot of money into the marketing campaigns on those. Well, for, for the latter part, but also 
if those are those are successful horror has been successful why aren't more films being produced in that genre there's again it, it's that it's that gatekeeping that that limitation of of control and power that the mm-hmm. industry holds mm-hmm. yeah so can you talk a little bit more then about it i'm sorry it's called indie scene if i got that right yeah that's correct as an independent filmmaker myself like what would indie scene offer me what would i get if i went to indie scene how would that work so right now you'll be able to kind of get an overview of the market the true marketplace you're saying that it's a source of kind of data at this point like i could go to it and i could look for data on how films are doing in various box office territories throughout the world that's one thing that it it could do yeah yeah information and resources so right now you could download the data sets for free later on we're going to have that subscription portion where then you'll have access to more information like with festivals with you know theaters and and venues throughout the globe so you can contact them directly again okay. that's it, it's that it's that epicenter where you're able to link up and we're building out the platform too where it's it's a more robust like a, a la411 or a creative handbook but for the independent market because mm-hmm. there's nothing out there really it's it's more of like everything is studio level there's no on the ground resources that filmmakers can tap into especially if you want to go and shoot somewhere else because that's what i i tell filmmakers all the time like don't you know don't look at necessarily your location where you are is where you have to shoot your film there's you know creative communities all over the globe and especially in LA like get out of LA like yeah. you know and it doesn't matter anymore. Like the transnational content scene where films, you know, can can be prominent cross-culturally even. And it's and it could be even more powerful. Like, you know, if you put it in a set it in a different language or different culture, it could actually turn out to be a more powerful film than, you know, your traditional formulae, you know, horror film or drama or, you know, what have you. So it's it's an exciting time because the technology's there. And that's like not even including like the virtual production and the AR, XR and all that stuff, which is really cool. We can talk about that later if you want. But yeah, it's an exciting time. And and it's like, why not? Like, that's that's the question is, you know, just let's do it. Let's. Yeah. Let's innovate. (laughs) So is your is your platform basically focused on theatrical distribution as opposed to streaming or is it both or? Yeah. Yeah. We wanted to focus on on theatrical because. Yeah. It's that that gap where you do the festival round and then you're looking at the platforms, the digital platforms. And that's kind of that for the Indian market, that's the the basically the streamline, if you will, right now. And we saw that especially during COVID, where you know, platforms are now kind of for lack of a better term, giving the shaft to a lot of independent films because mm-hmm. they're not acquiring as much as they used to which is actually hurting the market. And it also is hurting the platforms because the original content sometimes is very formulaic is, you know, over and over again, where you see like, oh, it's another crime drama. It's, an, you know, it's the same thing. And also, again, the representation. So going back to that culture and representation of the communities, well, I should say representation culturally and geographically of the communities. Right. And this kind of carries on to the box office and the cinemas because we, we look at them and how they're struggling. And so we want to kind of help out and support everyone at the same time. And we proved this in LA when we did a, a screening series in 2021. Mm-hmm. So when the pandemic hit, and of course, I'm sure you heard where 2020 South by Southwest got canceled. I was like one of the first people I was like, let's contact all the filmmakers and see if we could do a screening here in LA. Oh, wow. You know, why, why not? And everyone was, you know, pretty much on board, like most of the filmmakers were on board with it. And then, you know, LA shut down. <laughs> so we had to, we had to wait a year, but, but yeah, when we, when we got up, up and running again, we had over 40 pieces of content from South by that were screening there and uh, that we screened and showcased. And we, I think we had, what was it? About 830 in attendance um, with no media coverage, like no media publications wow. wanted to pick us up and highlight what we were doing, yeah. which it wasn't about. Us. It wasn't about indie scene. It was about these filmmakers and giving them a voice and also proving the market where we used blockchain technology through our team and their digital cinema platform. And that proved accessibility. So through their cinema platform, you could download a film, a feature film within 30 minutes, 2K quality. So DCP yeah. quality and screen it through their system. 
and you would still get that Kodak of 5.1 surround sound, everything worked beautifully. So the supply chain in that, like we've proved that. Like now anything is accessible. Doesn't matter where you are, you can access, you know, access films, whether it's on the on the big screen or on little screens, right. you know, for your community. And and also the sustainability because the payment system too is direct through our team. So that was that was kind of a win for us to establish that as well. So and I'm sorry, is- sorry to interrupt, but the the, no, no, the screening okay. the screening in LA though was an in person screening or that was a kind of mm-hmm. a virtual. Okay, so it was an in person in person screening. Where did you hold that in LA? I'm curious. So, so we held it at Lumiere Cinema, the Lumiere Cinema in Beverly Hills. Oh, okay. I'm not actually it, I'm not actually familiar with that. I lived in LA for four years, but way back in the nineties. Oh, okay. So maybe <laughs> so it didn't exist um, back then. But yeah, I mean it's it's right next to the the Writers Guild. Okay, like All right. right. Right there on the on the corner, like the writer's guild is on the corner. Cool. Not great parking, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I mean that's Beverly Hills. I yeah, mean yeah. we 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 approached because at the time I was working at the Landmark Cinema. Uh-huh. They they ghosted me. They didn't want to deal with me, and I'm like, okay. Same with Alamo Draft House. It's like okay. <laughs> so the Lumiere Cinema, we again, it wasn't just you know randomized. It was also thought of because it was an art house. And we wanted to promote this old, you know, art house and kind of rejuvenate it and bring the community in there and support, you know, independent films at the, at the same time. So it, it proved, it proved our point, but also it was an eye opener too, because again, the fragment, fragmentation of the industry, we didn't get, you know, as, as many promoting the screening series as I wanted to through like organizations that we reached out to, even partnerships like the LGBT center didn't really promote the, the series as, as much as I wanted to, because I really wanted to focus on that content that we were screening. The the other thing too was South by Southwest didn't even back us. Like mm-hmm. they they chirped in in social media like the second week, but I think that was that was mainly because a filmmaker kind of mentioned it to them. But yeah, we we let them know from the get go like, hey, we want to do this, and it was like crickets. So it's it's how did you actually get the list of filmmakers to contact? Did you have a contact oh. out South by that you were able to, or was it published at that point? I guess it was published at that point, right? Because the yeah, lineup was, was already was, set up. Yeah. yeah, that's what it is. Okay, right. Gotcha. And and, and I also, you know, dig a little, dug, uh, dug a little bit, you know, yeah. as far as connecting and reached out to them through, you know, sometimes through distributors, which the distributors for the most part were, you know, really gracious yeah. at letting us do this. Right. Because they, they knew the impact. And that's that's what it was about is the impact of this. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like that that was kind of a sort of a prototype for what indie scene is kind of connected to now. Would that be a safe, safe assessment? Is indie scene now, are you like directly in contact with independent cinemas all over the world? Like, do you actually have relationships with these cinemas? Like, how does that work? How does it work to get the data that you use and show? And how does that work to kind of partner with them to help filmmakers, uh, you know, approach and get into those theaters? I mean, we, we do, we have some relationships with, with, a few of the theaters around, we have a lot more relationships with film fe- festivals. Okay. Okay. That utilize those venues on a consistent basis. And we're looking at working more with festivals okay. on an annual basis to keep it rolling and to keep community events going. And and not just from their films at the festival, but like global films to, to you know, provide exposure for those communities. But yeah, we're, we're looking into that. That's one of the, the, the solutions that we're, that we're promoting within blockchain mm-hmm. is we want to get to a level where we have a connection, a direct connection with theaters, or at least whether it's us or whether it's through another party is having that box office information published on the blockchain where it's transparent and it validates mm-hmm. the the market. Mm. Because right now, I mean, going off of, you know, some of our, <laughs> some of our analysis with the box office numbers just from 2019, the last sustainable you know year that we had mm-hmm. about 90% of the information for the independent market was inaccurate mm. so you had discrepancies within like locations within countries released within box office gross or individual you know country grosses so just like even little things and you could check it out you know within our data sets it, it's just almost mind numbing to to have that because how can you get a proper read on the industry when you have one site saying, oh, it made this much, and another site saying, that, oh, it made this much, and then the, also the 
you know, the, the box office numbers like per, per week averages, like they fluctuate too. So you don't really have a good solid foundation of, you know, what films do like their, their whole waterfall process and, you know, providing a profit or revenue. So that's what we're, we're building. How did you determine that those numbers were inaccurate? Oh, a lot of research. (laughs) Okay. Like going through, yeah, going through the data and, and just kind of seeing again, the silver lining within the data and, you know, the due diligence, like, and also third party sites, like, you know, visiting, you know, outside countries and seeing, okay, the UK industry has it here. Yeah. Even though I, I focused on those two big ones because box office mojo is, you know, with IMDB, the numbers is a prominent one for indie filmmakers as well. And they cover most of the, the world, not all globally, like, you know, China and Asia, they don't have a lot of stuff. And some of that is, there's discrepancies there. But for the most part, those are the ones we focus on because it had the most data, the most, as far as being transparent, that, that it's transparent box office numbers that are accessible. Gotcha. Okay. I know you've referred to blockchain a few times. Like, can you talk a little bit more about what blockchain is, first of all, for people who don't really know that much about it, because it's, you know, it's one of those subjects that some people know a lot about and some people know nothing about it and they hear the word and they're like, oh, you know, blockchain, what does that mean? Yeah. If you can give just kind of like a basic introduction to that and then talk about how that actually fits into all of this research that you're doing, all, all of these mechanisms that you're using to help filmmakers connect with audiences. Yeah. So blockchain is a, a digital ledger system. And when you print something on it, it becomes permanent. So you can't change it. You can't disrupt it. I know there's a lot of bad blood with cryptocurrency, which Mm. is built on blockchain, but, and same with NFTs, but you have to think of blockchain as this layer of technology that is being built upon. So it's the base layer, like for instance, the, the internet, you know, the internet had a base layer before it became, you know, web 2.0 and Google and Yahoo and everything. So that's where blockchain is. But with blockchain, since you can't change it, you can't manipulate it. Well, I shouldn't say that. There, There is open chain networks where you can change and modify it. Mm-hmm. And you could ma- manipulate those. But, you know, done how it's supposed to run, you can't. So it's, it's for instance, like establishing a digital identity. Like you have your your social security, your healthcare, your all, all that information on blockchain. Nobody can like go in and, and corrupt it. So it's it's there, it's yours, it's your your information. So if you think of it like that, that's what we're looking at for the film industry, their box office. Mm-hmm. But with with blockchain too, there there comes a, a security element too, where that's where our teeny resides with blockchain is is they use a white labeling system where you can upload your content to their servers and it's secure under blockchain. So that acts as a, as a wall, as a protective wall. So people can't, you know, get into it and, and, <laughs> and steal your content as far as piracy yeah, right. is concerned. Okay. So that's, so that's about kind of about copyright protection. So can you talk like a little bit more specifically about how that would work? Like, let's say I, I, let's say I finished my independent feature film and I'm ready to put it out there into the world somewhere, somehow. How do I use blockchain to protect myself from that getting stolen? How does that actually work? Well, I mean, there, it's, there's no, there's avenues within blockchain where you can have security and it could be protected. I, I don't want to say everything like is that is run like that because, you know, there's no guarantee with some of these platforms, some of these companies. So you kind of have to do your due diligence to re- research on those. But with, with a case, again, like Artini, you upload your content and then through Artini, people will be able to access it and yeah. download your content through their cinema player and play it anywhere. That's just that's just one side of it. I mean, there's other sides where companies utilize the waterfall system within revenue streams. So when you make money through distribution, it comes through blockchain and it's transparent because you see those transactions in in real time. Right. And it and it's validated. So usually with blockchain too is with like the mining and everything with Bitcoin and things like that, you have people that validate the blockchain. So you have these transactions and then it's validated by, you know, three or five people within that chain. So it validates it. Right. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, it's more of an expanded conversation. I'm not a dive in technical type of person with blockchain. I understand the technology and, and how it is utilized and where it can go. 
within our industry, but I can't like write code for, oh, totally, <laughs> for right. blockchain to save my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm not asking you to to dive into that into it deeply. And probably if you would, it would alienate everybody listening anyway. <laughs> so yeah. You know, because I don't think, you know, too many filmmakers want to get into the nitty gritty details of that. But I do think that like there's, you know, certainly with NFTs and other other technologies built on blockchain, I think there's an awareness within the film community that there's something here that's happening that could help to sort of democratize filmmaking or film distribution in the future. Yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that involves smart contracts, too. So smart contracts are contracts that are permanent you know, laid permanent on the blockchain. And also it's the same thing with the division of residuals payments for, you know, distribution, but also for tokenization, which a lot of people use. I mean, they they promote it on the forefront as NFTs, you know, crowdfunding through NFTs, but it's really the smart contracts are what's behind everything that's doing everything within the tokens. Yeah. And that's really interesting. And we do want to get into that more and we've tried like reaching out to Kickstarter and some of these crowdfunding platforms to promote a different way of crowdfunding within the communities. But again, it's 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 these these different ways that they're doing it now is not optimal. It's not sustainable even for filmmakers. With Kevin Smith, he kind of started the ball rolling on a public scale where he's like, Oh yeah, sell off your film, you know, win tokens and and you'll get it funded. And what they don't tell you with that is that whole philosophy is that if you sell it off, then you're not going to receive the revenue or ownership, you know, back to you. It's it's going to be gone forever. So you're only going to get a portion of that that profit share, yeah, perpetuity. So my thinking is that why not create a platform where you're able to share, but then it cashes out over time so that everybody wins, and and that is a more fairness. And, and that's what you kind of see now with cryptos because people aren't, you know, really holding it for the long term. It's it's just for like, you know, profits of like, oh, hey, I'm going to put it in. And then a year or a couple months, I'm going to take it out when it, you know, gets above level. And I'm not talking about like, you know, 500, you know, dollars, you know, per token. I'm talking about, you know, just five to 15, you know, dollars per token, you know, as a crowdfunding source. And then you can include NFTs in there. So you get like little perks, like, streamed festival appearances or tickets or, you know, things like that, that'll benefit the people that, that buy into the ownership. But keeping the ownership, I think, in the end for the filmmakers is the most valuable. And it kind of goes into that whole pre-sale mindset too, where you're selling your film up front for less of a value because you're not just, you know, doing a deal with a distributor. You're also taking that deal to the bank to get the bank loan mm-hmm. or an equity firm and and then you're getting a portion of that so it's like it's it's less and less and then what are you actually seeing because in those pre-sale deals they're taking the most valuable markets and the other distributors aren't going to deal with you if you have these like ancillary markets that they don't really connect with or they don't want to put any time and effort to market your film there right so that's kind of the conundrum too where you know everyone keeps thinking of, of oh we have to do pre-sale deals to to you know raise money and capital and it's like that may not be the best idea. I know Lionsgate, that's kind of their their motive. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, I'm sorry, not motive, but their motto yeah, is pre-sale before the film even right. goes anywhere. But uh, but for the independent market, it's it's detrimental because then there's no sustainability for the filmmakers because you're not even. I mean, maybe you'll be able to make your money back if you pre-sell it, but it's it's very slim to none. I mean, right now, I mean, even since the pandemic, we're not even seeing barely any MGs, yeah, minimum guarantees from distributors. And then licensing agreements that filmmakers get now, it's, it, it's horrible. Like, I mean, not just talking about Netflix, because they always, you know, screw everyone over anyway. But yeah, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, just in general, you're, you're not able to make your money back on, on films. And, and that's where I want to change things is, and why I created the company is to, you know, create growth and sustainability for this market. Because I want to see filmmakers, you know, have a successful career and make movies, you know, movie after movie and kind of be more of a reflective of like what we saw in the 90s and early 2000s when yeah. they had the mini majors. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what what really irks me is the notion of and I've said this on the podcast several times before, so apologize to listeners for going on this rant again. But really, what really irks me is is like the notion that 
Yeah, as a filmmaker, I I don't personally anyway, I don't believe that filmmakers are necessarily entitled for their films, whatever they are, to be profitable or or get revenue. I mean, you still have to make a good film. You still have to do certain things to get people to watch your film and be interested in your film. Not every filmmaker is going to do that or be entitled. But what really irks me is that when a film does achieve a certain level of success and revenue, that so little of that revenue actually goes back to the filmmaker. And the you know the filmmaker who was in it from the very, very beginning, put their blood and sweat and tears into the film. And then they, you know, they have to split that pie with so many people who take portions of it before the filmmaker even sees a dime. Like there's something that's just just fundamentally wrong about that, you know? And there's something I think about kind of the the kinds of things that you're talking about and, you know, NFTs and and you know, these sorts of different ways of thinking about democratizing filmmaking and democratizing distribution in a way that like I'm I'm okay with gatekeepers taking some some money out of the pie, but I'm just not okay with them taking it at the expense of the filmmakers. And I wish like all the filmmakers in the world, all the indie indie filmmakers in the world would just somehow get together and just say, no, we refuse to sign any distribution deal that doesn't return 50% of the revenue directly to us because we're the ones who were in it from the beginning, you know, but of course, filmmakers aren't going to do that. So that's a fantasy, yeah. but still it's like, that's, that's what really gets me going is that, is that notion that it, you just, the filmmakers are just seeing so little of the percentage and they should see the biggest percentage. They should be the first to be able to, to recoup, you know, money off of the, the revenues of their films, you know? So these kinds of technologies and ideas, I think have a chance of revolutionizing that in some ways. And, and, you know, kind of turning that on its head and challenging the kind of industry norms that we've all come to accept, whether we like it or not. So that's, you know, that's what kind of excites me about the kinds of things that you're doing. Yeah, yeah, we have to. I mean, and that's why we're creating an ecosystem. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I just remembered Film Chain. Yeah. It's one of the, the companies that uh, we've been talking with within our ecosystem. They, they help with that waterfall process. So with the revenue, providing transparency for that within blockchain. So if any of the listeners want to <laughs> dive into film chain yeah. and reach out to them. They're they're really really good peeps. But yeah, going back to the the ecosystem, that's what we're trying to create here. Yeah. Even with some of the aggregators, the digital aggreg- aggregators like Film Hub, like these other platforms, you're waiting on the money and mm-hmm. you don't also know where your product is going. I've had several filmmakers that have just come out, you know, publicly and said, "Hey, I just found my my film on this YouTube channel from so-and-so, I don't know who they are. I wasn't notified. Like, and that's kind of one of the biggest things is, is, is that, that traction, the, the transactions. It's like knowing like where your product is going, because it's not just about piracy anymore. It's about this, the system itself. Like you said, it's, it's even on the studio level where now we're seeing so many people suing studios mm-hmm. For money, for the revenue shares that they lost. Yep, yep. And they haven't been seeing. So it's like it, you know, it, everyone's cooking their books and everyone's, you know, playing coy of, oh, we spent this amount of money or this amount of money. And and when you look at the the actual distribution models, your film is getting lumped into a package with a, a bunch of other films and presented to different markets. So you're not getting the full attention that your film needs. And it may be like last on the list to be promoted by this third party in, in this market. So like really like you have to take like ownership of, of the film itself, of your product itself and, and help. I and mean, that's why I usually tell filmmakers to raise money. So you have skin in the game, yep. you know, marketing funds, whether it's, you know, film festivals or whether it's, you know, trying to, to promote your film, like theatrically, you have to have some sort of mar- uh, marketing funds to get your film noticed and seen. And that and the business side is the 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 most important thing that I think that we need to transition to right now because a lot of filmmakers have this expectation uh, because it's not taught in film schools. Yeah. And it's and it's really not taught well or advised well in, in a lot of these panels too because it's like the film financing panels they're like, "Oh yeah, we can raise yeah, you know, funding for you if you get this name or this name and and look at these markets and it's like, no, it's the wrong information. It shouldn't be about the talent. It should be about the content itself. And that's the value. And again, because films now, they translate. It's, you know, 100%. They, you know, when people say dramas don't sell, yeah, they do. Like, I could prove it. 
And even like in the UK market, I did an article recently and showcased where, or highlighted, I should say, where some of these big films that went to Cannes that won, you know, awards or, you know, got Sundance acclaim, they only hit like six to eight countries. Mm-hmm. Like, how is that? Like for a prominent film to only be released in that such limited markets, like it, it's just, it's insane. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're getting kind of close to the hour mark here. Is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you want to touch upon? You know, just want to give you the chance to cover anything that you wanted to cover with this interview. I think like right now, the most important thing is community. Yeah. That's, that's what we're trying to address. A lot of the cinemas themselves aren't adapting to new business models to make themselves sustainable. And even the community engagement is not there. We've, we've tried approaching several different UK cinemas to kind of promote this mindset and they just weren't having it. So it's more of us now focusing on the community and just putting the films out there how we can, whether it's like pop-ups or, or using different venues and then bringing the cinemas on board, you know, once they see that. Yeah. Because a lot of these organizations that work with cinemas, whether it's like public funding or otherwise, they're not supporting the cinemas as they should be. They keep, you know, doing these surveys and like, oh, what, what's what's the problem? We have to address the problems. It's like, no, or establish the problem. We already know the problems. We have the solution. We just have to enact the solution. That's what we're trying to do. And I think right now the biggest thing is foregoing like the focus on cinemas themselves and looking at the community and then the cinemas will will follow. Yeah. And that's where I think that the industry needs to to pivot to. And we need to just look at our communities. I mean, even within, you know, filmmakers, like defining the communities that these markets, you know, have, you know, again, culturally or geographically, again, you can make your film anywhere. And like the Latin market, it translates everywhere in the world. There is Latin communities. (laughs) Right. 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 So, I mean, that's, that's the thing that the filmmakers need to, to push for. And, and even when they're talking about distribution deals, like know the markets and that way you can present your, your content and be like, no, no, we want, this this cinema right here because it's within this market where we think the community will be happy to um to engage this content right yeah and i mean i think that the service that you're providing will give it sounds like it will give filmmakers sort of a lot more ammunition to be able to do that uh you know a lot more data to kind of back up their decisions on where to target with their films would that be a fair characterization yeah yeah 100 yeah. percent. and then yeah and also, we're going to put in, in we're going to integrate the community awareness aspects yeah. too. Right. So defining those communities that the cinemas and the venues are in, that way, the decisions are driven based on the data analysis mm-hmm. rather than the distributors where filmmakers can then say, okay, well, this is where we want to go. And I think that that's worked well with some of the films recently, especially with like Sound of Freedom, yeah, where they targeted specific places and, and knew their community. Filmmakers want to check out Indie Scene. Is it a service that they sign up for? Is there a subscription that they pay for? Is everything kind of right now kind of free? Like, can you describe a little bit about what the what the actual logistics of getting more familiar with your service are? Yeah, our, our website's free right yep. now. Okay. Our MVP's up and it's uh, IndieScene.io or you can visit us on you know our social platforms, whether it's Instagram, I have a Facebook page. <laughs> Twitter X is still around. We started doing some TikToks. We're probably going to do more TikToks and involve like some of the festivals and and, and some of the partnerships with uh, like Reload and stuff like that. We're going to try and promote more independent content, whether it be, you know, in association with festivals or filmmakers themselves. So again, it's it's getting the exposure out there for the the independent community. Cool. And then just kind of... uh... For you personally, uh, do you have any any other projects of your own going on aside from this? Any personal films that you're working on? Anything like that? Yeah, I, I, have, I have probably like a dozen. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Projects that are are in development or in process. Where, but it's not something that I'm going to be helming directly. It's more of I develop these projects now to create outlets for opportunities of others. Right. So, so other filmmakers and and producers and writers can. And have an opportunity for you know for their to develop their careers. Yeah. So we have we have a couple things that go into the XR, AR, VR realm stuff that's that's kind of shifting in the marketplace that, that we're seeing with the immersive realm. Mm-hmm. 
as we've seen, you know, Apple Vision Pro coming out and Quest 3 and, and those platforms now are enabling this. And I've, I've talked with a Sony executive at VR like years ago about this. I was like, storytelling is going to change drastic, drastically because you're going to be able to like choose your storyline like a video game branches out. And it's going to be really cool, really fun. Not necessarily like Bandersnatch, but kind of a more evolved where then you're able to access things in real life. Like I have a Dante's Inferno project where you can not only like play game, like, like small games within episodes, but then also venture into like virtual museums during those episodes that are in reference to the cinema, you know, yeah. cinematic landscape. It sounds like a lot of, a lot of really exciting stuff, interesting stuff that you're involved with. And yeah, I look forward to hearing more from you, uh, you know, about these these efforts. I mean, I think that the the effort to focus filmmakers on communities, focus them on being able to understand where their films are going and how their films are going to play out there in the marketplace and these various cinemas and things like that. I think that's all like really useful stuff for filmmakers going forward in this you know crazy world that we live in right now, where we're all trying to figure out how to get our movies out there. Yeah, really interested to see where this goes. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you know your time and and the opportunity. Check. All right, that's all for today. Thanks everybody for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That is the best way that you can help me grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who want to try to understand this crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. As always, feel free to contact me directly with any feedback or suggestions for the show. You can find me on Twitter or should I say X or Instagram at darkrosecolin, or you can email me at colin at darkrosepictures.com. That's colin, C-O-L-I-N, one L, at darkrosepictures.com. And by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my website for my feature and other projects. Its purpose is not just to promote my films, but to tell the story with honesty and transparency of my personal filmmaking journey. So if you want to follow the process of an independent filmmaker from development to distribution, this is a great way to do that. So check it out, darkrosepictures.com. Anyway, I want to thank Sean Dawes for a really cool and interesting conversation. I want to thank my editor, Jeff Vrymoot, for editing this episode and putting up with some weird scheduling challenges lately. I have more great guests lined up in the coming weeks talking all things indie distribution. So stay tuned, keep getting those movies out there into the world. And as always, thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye.